I'll begin reading in verse 15. I'll read a section of this chapter and then we'll go to chapter 9. Esther 8, verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. And then go to uh, chapter 9, verse 20 with me. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, That they should make them days of feasting and gladness. Days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. And had cast the poor, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Let's pray. Father, would you help us once again as we come to the book of Esther? As we have found throughout this series, uh, we we found here a thrilling story, uh, but also a strange one. Uh, Elements of these words and practices that are distant from us culturally. uh, Words that we struggle to to know how to connect to our lives. Uh, to know what these say to us, but we come trusting once again that this book is a gift from you, even when it confuses us. And so we come uh, with our burdens, uh, we come with our grief and sorrow, uh, we come with our joy, uh, we come with our needs and our fears, and we trust that you are speaking now through your word and your spirit. Would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see? Hearts that are soft and receptive soil to the life-producing seed of your word. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I started thinking about this sermon in the ICU waiting room at Bay County Medical in Panama City. 
Um, many of you know that the Huffs, a family connected to our congregation, last Sunday were in a terrible uh, car accident. And Emily, uh, wife and mother of this family, is still in the ICU in Panama City uh, with uh, critical and life-threatening injuries. And so I began thinking about this sermon in that ICU waiting room, and my first impulse was to set this text aside as inappropriate for what our community has gone through this week. You see, in the book of Esther, the most common word is the word for banquet. It's the word for party. And at the beginning of this drama, there are two parties, there are two banquets that set the stage for this drama. And then in the middle of this drama, there are two banquets hosted by Esther that expose the evil plot of Haman. And then here at the end of this drama, what do we find? We find a mandate, a mandate for two days of feasting, two days of a raucous festival. And so do you see why I thought these texts might be inappropriate for us? Do you see why I wanted to set them aside? How in the midst of so much grief and fear can we talk about gladness? But in the end, I decided not to run away from that tension, but to run towards it. And I decided to do that because I think that's what the Bible does. The Bible constantly intermingles, overlays sorrow and joy as two of the great experiential realities of our lives as God's people. Sorrow and joy. And so I want to run towards this tension. And I want to look here at the end of the book of Esther. And I want to ask two questions about celebration. In, the, in a world where there is so much grief and tragedy and fear, why should we celebrate and how should we celebrate? First of all, why? The story of Esther could be told through the fashion of Mordecai. Mordecai's change of clothes are at the heart of this narrative. So here in chapter 8... He has secured an edict that allows the Jews to defend themselves as they are being attacked. He has been promoted into the position of his great rival, Haman, who is now deceased. And so he walks out of the throne room of the king. And what does the text tell us? It tells us that he walks out of that throne room dressed beautifully, royally. And the entire capital city erupts with celebration in response to the clothes of Mordecai. Now this is in stark contrast to chapter 4. Where Mordecai finds out about the plot of Haman for the annihilation of the Jewish people. What does he do then? What does he do when he finds out about that first edict? He rips his clothes. And then he puts on sackcloth. It's like a burlap sack. And he throws ashes on himself. And the whole city weeps and mourns in response to the clothes of Mordecai. So do you see the story of Esther? 
It is a movement from sackcloth to royal robes. Now why? Why can there be such a dramatic transformation of Mordecai's attire? Well, because this story, its languages and images and ideas, they are all connected to a song. They're connected to a song that we find in Psalm 30, where the poet speaks to God, he sings to God, and he says, God, you have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. You see, Mordecai and Esther and their community, they are living that poetry. They are living that great reversal from sackcloth to gladness. That's why Mordecai's attire changes. Because God intervenes. Now remember, we've said this several times, the book of Esther does not mention God. God is not named in this story. But the reversal that occurs, the transformation that occurs, it reveals that although God is not named, He is near. Although He is not named, He is near. To his people. That's why their clothes change. Although his work is obscure and confusing. He is not passive. But he is active for the life and the joy of his people. That's why they celebrate. And they understand this about their God. That's why they name the festival Purim. Or Purim. Do you remember what Purim or Purim, do you remember what they are? We talked about it a few weeks ago. They are lots. They're dice. And do you remember Haman? He threw the dice, discerning the will of his gods for the destruction of the Jewish people. Why in the world would the Jewish people then take that word? Take the word for dice and name their festival with it. Well, because they knew some more poetry, they knew another song. Psalm 16 says to God, you hold my lot. It's the same word. They understood that as Haman threw the dice, God held them and turned them for their life, for their rescue, and for their joy. That's why they celebrated. Because God held their lot, and God changed their clothes from sackcloth to gladness, to royal robes of celebration. I heard an interview with a comedian And the interviewer asked him about his dark humor. Asked him about those jokes that make people uncomfortable, that seem to go too far in a dark direction. And the comedian answered that question this way. He says, it is such a great thing to go to a scary place and laugh. That's Esther, isn't it? 
God's people in a scary place laughing. And we can join their laughter. We can join their laughter. We can join their laughter because it's not the laughter of denial. It's not laughter that pretends about sorrow, about danger, about grief. No, we can join their laughter because it is the laughter of providence. It is a mirth that comes from the great truth that even though God may not be named, He is still near to those who belong to Him. Even though His ways, His work may be obscure, may be confusing, He is not passive. But he is active for the gladness, for the internal, for the eternal joy of his people. We can celebrate because even when God is not named, he is still near. And we know that because he came near in his son, Jesus who took on the clothes of sorrow, who took on the clothes of grief, who took on the clothes of this tragic and broken and sinful world. And why did He do that? He did that so He could clothe us with gladness. We know that God, although He is not named, He is still near because He has come near through the gift of His Holy Spirit who dwells with us, who grieves with us, and who is at work in us producing the fruit of joy. We can celebrate because although God may not be named, He is still near. We don't celebrate because every situation turns out happy. We don't celebrate because every situation has a happy ending. Think about the people here in Esther. They get rescue, right? But they're still in exile. Yes? They're still in exile. And if you follow their history after the book of Esther, it's not a pleasant one. They would have marked this festival during very dark and threatening times. You see, our joy doesn't come from the absence of sorrow. It comes from the presence of God. Our joy doesn't come from the absence of sorrow. It comes from the presence and the activity of God who is at work through His Son and Spirit. Not always for our immediate relief, but for our eternal rest. That's why we celebrate. We don't celebrate pretending. That all is happy now. We celebrate clinging to the reality of God's presence. The reality of His providence. The truth that He is with us. And that He is at work for our good and for our eternal joy. That's why we celebrate. 
What about how? Second question, how should we celebrate as God's people, even in a world that is full of grief and sorrow and fear? How should we celebrate? Well, I'm happy to say food. Food is how we celebrate. Uh, The story of Esther could be told not only through the fashion of Mordecai, but through the eating and drinking of God's people. This narrative is the movement from fasting to feasting. Right? And I want you to notice three aspects of the people's feasting here in these last few chapters of the book of Esther. Three aspects of their feasting. First of all, it is perpetual feasting. The celebration doesn't start with the, uh, doesn't stop with the immediate party. They say we are going to perpetuate this joy throughout the generations to come. Every year we will mark this celebration. So their feasting is perpetual and it is also communal. This is not a table for one. This is a table that is so full of celebration that it spills over to neighbors and friends and even to the poor. Their feasting is perpetual, it is communal, and it is also infectious. This is infectious feasting. Did you notice that not only the Jews celebrate, but the Persians also celebrate? Did you see that? And in some cases, the Persians say, okay, now we're done being Persians. We want to become a part of the Jewish people because of this joy, because of this party, because of this celebration. There are resonance here with the uh, prophet Zechariah. Zechariah in chapter 8, he is sitting in a situation of tragedy, of sorrow. But he looks out onto the horizon, he looks to the future, and he says, God will for his people change their fasting into feasting. And he says, when that happens, people from all nations will grab hold of their robes and say, take us with you. Take us with you, because we have heard that God is with you. And He is changing your fasting into feasting. That's what we see here in the book of Esther. This is an anticipation of the complete fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Now, why this kind of celebration? Why is feasting... The method of celebration. The method of joy. I mean, certainly most of us, we enjoy a good meal, right? We enjoy good food and drink. But there's more going on here with this feast. In almost all human cultures throughout history, tables are places of memory. Table are places of memory. We ritualize eating in order to connect the past to the present to the future. And we see that not only throughout human history, but we see that throughout Scripture. Meals that remember what God has done in the past, they remember God's intervening, rescuing actions. Meals that enjoy God's presence with His people now in the present. Meals that anticipate a future when God will fulfill, when He will complete all the promises that that He has made to them. So, it's not surprising then that Jesus, who gives us, Jesus gives us very few things 
as his church, as his people, that we are supposed to do on a regular basis. He gives us very few things to do on a regular basis. But one thing he tells us to do often is he tells us to eat and to drink. He gives us a meal. He gives us a table. And, and most often this table is connected to the Feast of Passover, another famous Old Testament festival. But this table is not only our Passover, it is also our Purim. It is a table where we remember that we have been rescued. We remember that Jesus has saved us from the wrath of God for our sin. He has defeated the enemies of sin, Satan, and hell. But this is a table not only where we remember, it is a table where we are nourished by God's presence with us Right now. And it is also a table where we anticipate the future. We anticipate a future when all of our fasting will become feasting. All of our sorrow will become joy. All of our tears will be wiped away and we will sit down at the table with our And so we should come to this table often because it is a table through which we celebrate our God. It is a table where we taste the joy that he has purchased for us through his son, Jesus. But we should come not only to this table weekly, we should daily come to the table of the gospel. We should daily come to the table of that message of what God has done for us through His Son and through His Spirit. We should come daily and taste the forgiveness of our sins. We should come daily and taste the power of God's Spirit with us. We should come daily and taste the hope of the resurrection. And if we will, If we will do that, we will become a people of infectious feasting. That's what we should be. That's what we should want for ourselves as individuals. Even more, that's what we should want as a church. We should want Centerpoint to be a place of infectious feasting. Not a people of fake cheerfulness but a people with a deep and attractive astonishment at what God has done. Think about the earliest church in the book of Acts. What does that book tell us the church does? They don't do a whole lot. They get together regularly. They hear the teaching of the apostles, the gospel. They pray and they break bread. But what happens? The world is turned upside down. By their joy. You see, as Christians, we will change the world, not with our strategy, but with our feasting. We will change the world, not with our intellect, but with our eating and our drinking. As Christians, we will change the world, not through our effectiveness, but through our joy.
we should pray that God would make us a place of infectious feasting. Where we come to the table of grace. And we bring others with us to that table. And we are so filled with joy at that table that it spills out to our neighbors. And it spills out to those in need in our community. We will change the city of Tallahassee through nothing else other than our eating and our drinking. I was uh, praying with Alex uh, this week, Emily's husband, Alex, at, at her bedside in the hospital. And as we were praying, Alex mentioned the valley of the shadow of death. He used that to describe what he and his family are going through even now. And of course, that comes from Psalm 23. But you know what? There's something else in Psalm 23. There is not only a valley, there is also a table. The poet says that God has set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that the book of Esther? Isn't that what God does in this story? He sets a table for his people in the presence of their enemies. And listen, we have a better feast in Jesus. We have a better table through Jesus. So that in this veil of tears, there can still be for us the laughter of providence. And as we still face the grief and the anxiety and the stress and the discouragement of our enemies, there is still a table where we can come. And taste joy, true and eternal celebration. Let's pray.